Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as we deal with the creation saga. Tonight we'll do Sin and the Serpent in Genesis 3. So the two sermons, morning and evening, are tied together this week. So this morning we begin with creation in Genesis chapter 1. Before the beginning of the beginning of anything that ever was, there was God and nothing else. The emptiness was emptier than anyone could imagine, so God began to speak. God began to tell the story from which the very universe emerged. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Some of you are old enough to remember those old E.F. Hutton commercials for the investment firm E.F. Hutton. E.F. Hutton is mostly remembered from this catchy advertising slogan, when E.F. Hutton talks, you could finish it, people listen. The commercials would show people busy in the city life and the restaurants out on the streets and all of a sudden the actor would say, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton and E.F. Hutton says, and the whole world would stop and lean in to hear what E.F. Hutton had to say. Well, it may or may not be true that when E.F. Hutton spoke, people listened. But I can say with all confidence this morning that when God talks, things begin to happen whether people listen or not. First thing I want you to see this morning is when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things happen. The very cosmos was called out in this text out of the chaos by thus saith the Lord. Let there be, and it was, and it was good. In fact, as you look at Genesis 1, there's only one person speaking during the entirety of the chapter. And that one person is God the Father. It's not a dialogue. It's only a monologue. And God alone takes center stage and spotlight. And even man that's created with a tongue by which he could respond and speak does not speak back to God in the first chapter of the Bible. In this beautiful story of creation, the chaos of nothing, becomes the symphony of everything. And each and every day, God speaks. Let there be, and there is. In fact, if you look at the number of times that God speaks in Genesis 1, you realize this whole saga is about a speaking God who creates with his word. Look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 6, and then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, and then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. God speaks, 
And things began to happen. Look at verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And, and it was so. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 29, then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. God speaks time and time again, calling into being all that is. When God speaks, it is so. In fact, speaking is such a defining characteristic of God in chapter 1. The Genesis 1 is about this story-telling, speaking God. Every time someone preaches from Genesis, you hear about anything and everything, but no one addresses the speaker of the text. It's a speaking God, and His Word creates. When God speaks, things happen. God is our chief and only actor in Genesis 1. In fact, it all begins properly in verse 1. In the beginning, God. That's all there is in the beginning. In the beginning, God. The very words of God we see transform chaos into the cosmos and darkness into light and alter that which is nothing into something that is good, holy, and worthy of God's blessing. The speech of God is a sovereign call. The speaking God is not open to debate with anyone in Genesis 1. For his words are sure to have their way. Clearly the creation will be God's creation for God himself has called this creation into being. God, it is seen in Romans 4, 17. God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. God calls into being, Paul says, that which does not previously exist. And Peter agrees with Paul in his second letter, chapter 3. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Isaiah 55, 11 says, like our music this morning, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return to me to void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereas I sin it. Second thing I want you to see, God and his creation are distinct and yet inextricably linked. God and his creation are distinct and yet inextricably linked. First of all, the distinction. Have you ever noticed when humankind veers off track in history, we've usually failed to make that distinction between the creator and the creation? Most of our problems are related when we confuse ourselves to be the creator rather than the creation, when we try to move and change the boundaries of the Almighty. God alone is creator. He alone decided to create. 
He could have decided in his providence not to create anything, to allow himself to just move over the surface of the formless void. The man begins to be confused and worship creation throughout history. We've worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals, whether it be a sacred cow or a holy hippo. In short, everything the pagans have worshipped are things that God has made. For God himself is not intimidated by that idol worship because he has formed all of those by his own hand. He will not change his plans based upon our inappropriate worship of creation. Yes, most of our problems happen when we confuse the creator with the creation. When we ourselves try to play the role of creator, the life giver. When we try to redefine the beginning or the ending of life, we're trying to be the creator rather than creation. Whether it's abortion or euthanasia or suicide, we are pretending to be the giver and taker of life when we are not that. We are rather just creation. But not only are creator and creation distinct, we're also inextricably linked. We're together. Creator and creation are indeed, we see in this symphony in Genesis 1, we're in relationship. God and his distinction are bound together in a distinctive and delicate way. That's the presupposition of everything that follows in God's word, that God loves his creation. It's only from this premise that God is the creator and he loves his creation that there can ever be any good news in Matthew that Jesus, a co-creator with God, has come to redeem not only humankind, but ultimately all of creation itself. God will always have a faithful relationship with earth. The binding is irreversible. God has already decided, and the connection cannot be nullified. That we realize in Romans chapter 8 that Paul reminds us is just not we who are broken by the sin of Adam, but rather the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. It is God's creation, and all of creation longs to be set free, to go back to the Garden of Eden from the powers of sin and corruption. Here's the third thing I want you to see. What God created is good and worthy to be blessed. What God has created is good and worthy to be blessed. No less than six times. God judges his creation. God says, let there be. It comes into existence. And then God surveys what he's done. And God says, it's good. Six times. And then a, a seventh time, he says, yes, it's, it's very good. Look at verse 4. And God saw the light was good. Verse 10. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. Again, in verse 18 and 21 and 25, God surveys as creator the creation, and God says, it's good. It's good. Then verse 31, the last verse of the chapter. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The sun, the moon, the sea monsters in this chapter, all of Genesis 1 are part of God's very good creation. Whether it was the grass or the earth or a myriad of galaxies, God looked at all that God had done, and God says, well, they were all that he wanted them to be. His creation was very good. Here's a fourth thing I want you to see. Humanity holds a very special place in God's creation. Humankind holds a special place in God's creation. I wonder if you've ever noticed it before. This storytelling God, this speaking God that calls into being something out of nothing is the only character to utter a word in this chapter. And when he does speak, the only time he speaks directly to part of his creation is when he speaks to humankind, human creatures. The other creation, the fish and the animals and the trees, they have no words or little words at all spoken to them. But in verse 28 and 29, God speaks to humanity and he addresses humanity twice. There is a special place in God's creation with his crown of humanity. He speaks to the last creature. You, he says two times. This crowning creature is different in that it has an intimate relationship with the Creator. And God has made a particularly intense commitment to this creature, to humankind, by speaking to Him. This marvelous freedom was given to this creature in His and her ability to respond to the Creator. God has, we will see, no less than equipped humankind, men and women, to function as his agents on earth. Humanity was created by God as a glorious creature, beautiful in form and lordly in dominion over the earth, favored in the relationship above all other creation by the Creator. Man was to have a directive role over creation. It says here that God gives human beings dominion over the freshly created world and commands that we subdue it. Now, the word here for subdue is a strong word like the treading on the grapes of Joel 3 or the dominating an enemy at war in Numbers 24 or Psalm 72. Humans have a clear active role as stewards of all that God has created. You will have dominion over. You will subdue creation. But it only seems fitting as stewards of the great creation of God. We're to take care of the earth, not to destroy it. We're to be stewards of the earth for the long-term good for all humanity and all creation. Yet it is not the tree or the bird or even the lion that have dominion over the earth. It is humankind. Notice what he says about humankind. In verse 27, and God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created them. Now, I want you to notice carefully, both male and female, he created them. This gender distinction between male and female is part of the boundaries of God's creation itself. 
The human person is ordained by God to be either male or female, both equally created in the image of God. And sexuality is a good thing in Genesis 1. It is ordained by God as part of his creation. Be fruitful, he says to the male and the female, and fill the earth, he says to the man and the woman. Humanity was not created as some sort of androgynous, genderless being. We are created as male or female. Gender is determined by biology, chromosomes, XX female, XY male. It's clear. It's simple. No amount of rhetoric trying to redefine gender for political purposes cancels the basic biology of chromosomes and hormones. They can't be trumped. Maleness and femaleness are both part of God's imagery. Male and female, he created them in his image. Today, at an alarming rate, I read about it again this week, we have a political movement to convince girls they have to be boys to have any true value. And that undermines the value of womanhood as established here in Genesis 27. Male and female, he created them. We have a, a spike in adolescent girls coming from nowhere in the last decade seeking to identify as boys. They need to hear from a pulpit like this one, congregation, if, if God's people won't be the prophet in this madness, I don't know who you think is going to step up and do it. They need to hear that femaleness is a valued part of God's good creation. That women are also made in God's image. In fact, the Wall Street Journal, even this week, while I was preparing the sermon, by coincidence had an article entitled, Every Tomboy is Now Tagged as Transgender. Every Tomboy Gets Tagged as Transgender. What a narrow definition of womanhood. A negative stereotype of yesteryear. You see, male and female created he them. Adolescents are confused and then Outside forces add to their confusion. And they are surgically and pharmaceutically butchered for someone's philosophical or profit agenda. In fact, I read this week that the World Professional Association for Transgender Health now has moved the, the process earlier. Take these little girls at age 14 and begin chemically changing them. And then at age 15 now, the surgeries or legal in some states. Male and female, he created them. Women have the image of God as men do. And girls have to be valued and prized and elevated and loved and not be told they have to become a man to have any value. There's some strange bed partners emerging in this movement. And heterosexuality is no less grounded in the first book of the Bible than the very creating command of God. Male and female created he them. 
both in the image of God. And he told them heterosexually to be fruitful and to multiply. There's the fifth thing I want you to see. God rested on the seventh day. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The Sabbath for Israel was a day of rest. The Sabbath and observance, your being here today, announces to the whole world that your faith is in the creating, redeeming, sustaining, returning God, and no other God, and no other religion, that this is your day of worship, that you reject all other worldviews that don't put God, the creating God, in his day at rest at center. When we rest on the Sabbath, when we make it a day to worship him, We're saying that we trust God. God himself was confident enough to stop toiling one day, and so can we. And the life of here and now does not depend upon our incessant, feverish activity of self-security. But rather, we can pause in our regular work week and take a day to stop and thank the one who created and sustains us and saves us. But when you and I, Treat the day of worship like any other day. In the New Testament, that would be the day of resurrection today, the first day of the week. Then we are fundamentally failing to acknowledge God as creator. For the creator himself set this pattern. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. And the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. When we stop our activities and gather in this house on the day of the resurrection of our Savior, we are setting aside the tyranny of the urgent, of the moment of recapturing the stability and the equilibrium that God established when he created the cosmos. You see where the whole narrative is going here. The creation of humankind on the sixth day is not the end of the story. The seventh day is not an add-on expression. It wasn't as if God ran out of things to create or things to do. But rather the introduction, the creation of humankind was an introduction to the climax of worship of the one who had created it all. That beautiful passage in the Isaiah passage of Isaiah 66, which says, The heaven is God's throne, and the earth is his footstool, providing a rest place for him. And God finds his resting place in Isaiah 66. He's covering the heavens all the way to the earth. He is sovereign over all that he has created, both the heavens and the earth. Then the tabernacle, the temple are simply shadows or symbols of all of creation, which is his sacred space. Sabbath means that God has taken the place at the helm. When we stop like today and we worship him and we call time out at life and we acknowledge him for who he is, 
We are recognizing what the psalmist saw so long ago in Psalm 104, that God covers himself with light as a cloak. He stretches out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the upper beam, the chambers, and the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, and he walks on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers and the flaming fire his ministers. And he established the earth as its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. Have you ever watched a bald eagle catch a rising thermal and glide totally out of sight without ever flapping a wing? How did he learn to do that? Those who've watched it call it one of the most inspiring events that one could possibly behold. Ever sit and observe a garden spider make that intricate web always turning inward? How does that spider know? Amazingly, how does she know that the creative wisdom of God, the instinct to spiral inward, the intricate pattern, if you tear down the web, she'll build it again, exactly like the one you tore down. Ever sit in absolute total darkness of a cave? So dark you can feel it, so dark you're afraid to move a muscle lest you fall. And yet here the high-pitched chirping bats as they effortlessly negotiate the cavernous spaces and each bat returns back to the exact location where the bat roosted the night before. Echolocation capabilities Allow the bat to maneuver when we can see nothing. Ever laid your back on your back for hours in the night in West Texas where there's no city lights to adulterate the sky and watch the full measure of the glory of the heavens and the stars shine with such brilliance as to shout the Milky Way so spectacular it seems a solid river of light gently flowing from horizon to horizon and makes you stand in awe that God, the God of the stars, The God of the heavenly bodies loves you and wants to know you personally and send his son to die for you. Ever hike in the Rocky Mountains with a backpack to absorb the ever evergreen laden air and feel the crisp freshness of the dawn as the sun slowly revealed its face over the peak. You're standing there in a year-round pile of snow. You look at the verdant valley below with the rivers as veins Meandering across the meadows. Ever hear the rhythmic giggle of a little baby the first time she feels the cold nose of the household puppy? As a psalmist of old has already declared, O Lord, how many are your works! And wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. I will sing to the Lord, says the psalmist, as long as I live, I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth, the whole earth is full of his creation glory. Let us pray. Oh God, we're reminded today that you are the creator and we're mere creation. 
reminded today that you set boundaries and we cause havoc when we cross them. You remind today that you are committed to your relationship with humankind and such that you become one of us in Christ Jesus and you're crucified, a body to be broken and blood to be shed as the Creator becomes part of His creation. And today we rest and we say we will not treat today like any other day because on this day you rested. You too took a day to rest. And on this day, our Christ was resurrected. And in his name we pray. Amen.